Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Julian Moggins, and you're listening to What It Was Like, the show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. So, Wolf Creek. You might have seen it, or maybe you've seen Wolf Creek 2, or, or maybe you've seen the television series. My point is that it's familiar. And this franchise was partially inspired by the case that we're going to look at today. So as you might remember, in Wolf Creek, there's this serial killer who's stalking down backpackers in the Australian desert. And one real-life case that inspired that film took place in, in July of 2001. What happened is that a British couple named Peter Falconio and Joanne Lees, they were driving a combi van through a remote strip of desert near Barrow Creek in the Northern Territory. Um, I actually traveled up this way. Uh, it's along the, the Stewart Highway, which is this highway that runs down the, the very middle of the Australian continent. And, and it's incredible how quiet and, and almost eerie this, this place is. It's um, especially at night, which is when they were driving. It's, uh, it's just red sand as far as you can see with bits of salt bush and a, and a night sky that just meets at the horizon. And it's, it's very quiet. And, and, and I want you to picture that this was the, the kind of the situation at about 7.30 in the evening. And Joanne and, and Peter are driving down this highway. And, and they realize they're being followed. Uh, and there's this Toyota Land Cruiser. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a ute. In the, in the US, you'd call it a pickup, and it's got a canopy on the back of it. And, and the driver behind them seems really excited. He's pulling up alongside them, and he's gesturing for them to pull over like there was, like there was something wrong with their van. And, um, and you know, despite how, how dark and, and kind of freaky it was, they, they believed him, and they, and they pulled over. And then this man, he, he got out, and he told them that he had seen sparks coming out of the van's exhaust pipe, and he wanted, he wanted Peter to go around the back of the combi and check out the exhaust pipe with him. So Peter reluctantly 
got out of the van, went round the back, and then Joanne slid into the driver's seat just in case they needed to flee. Later, she told police that she heard a gunshot from behind the combi. And then suddenly the driver from the other vehicle, this guy who would later be identified as Bradley Murdoch, he was looming up at her side window and he was pointing a handgun at her. And then he dragged her out of the van and used cable ties to lash her hands together behind her back. And then he dragged her back along the ground towards his own vehicle. It seems like at this point, a little tiny miracle happened because Bradley got distracted for just a moment. Uh, he had a dog and it's thought maybe the dog was barking or he moved um, Peter Falconio's body or something like that happened. But Joanne had just enough time to scramble to her feet and she dove off into the scrub. And she told police that she ran and managed to hide behind some salt bush while Bradley searched around for her in the dark. Finally, he gave up and left and she flagged down a passing motorist a few hours later who took her to the police station. What happened after that was a case of police ineptitude. Joanne gave a statement to the Northern Territory Police, which they promptly lost. And then they went in and the crime scene got really badly contaminated and the days turned into weeks and months and it, it really just looked like the killer would never be apprehended. And that brings us to today's podcast guest. Because the case was solved and the killer was apprehended and it was all because of a woman named Colleen Gwynn. Back in 2001, Colleen was a police officer in Ellis Springs. She'd never worked on a case that had received international attention before, and she'd never even really worked on a homicide case before. But as the investigation stalled, Colleen was assigned to take over, and so she did. And Colleen displayed this kind of, uh, like, tireless diligence. She went over the old evidence and revisited leads that the other officers told her were just dead ends. She brought fresh eyes to the whole thing, and she and her team narrowed down the suspects to this guy... Bradley Murdoch, who on December 13, 2005, was convicted for the murder of Peter Falconio and sentenced to life in prison. I mean, that just by itself is a wild story. But for Colleen, it was almost a case of history repeating itself. And by that, what I mean is that Colleen Gwynn has a, has a bit of a history of sticking up for the underdog and holding oppressors to account. And I didn't really fully appreciate this before I spoke to her, but, but before all of this happened, before this big tabloidy murder case, Colleen had actually rescued her mother from her abusive alcoholic husband, who was, of course, Colleen's dad. And then years later, after the Bradley Murdoch case and you know he was in jail, Colleen became the children's commissioner for the Northern Territory, which meant that she headed up the government effort to protect vulnerable children. In fact, she was the one who instigated the 2016 Royal Commission into the protection and detention of children in, in the Northern Territory, which, as you might remember, was uh, it was in response to just horrible abuse that was happening to Indigenous kids at the Dondale Detention Centre. Now, my point is that I think I've met few people with a stronger sense of social justice than Colleen Gwynn. I realised while talking to her that she just doesn't hesitate. You know, she's like she's never afraid or intimidated by bullies. And that and that doesn't matter if that bully is a sadistic killer or an oppressive bureaucracy or or just her own father. Uh, she just seems to know what's right and she acts on it. So I hope you find Colleen Gwynn as inspiring as I have. All right, Colleen. So we're gonna we're gonna start way back at the beginning. Can you tell me about your childhood? Yeah, um, from a working class family. Grew up. I was one of eight. My father was a fisherman by trade and my mother was not only a mother to eight kids but we had a uh, like some beach shacks, uh, holiday shacks that my mother used to caretake and clean, um, do all the administration around that. 
My father would, um, but both of them were very, very hard workers. My father would often go out fishing for days and come back with no fish. He wasn't the best fisherman. Would you say that you had a happy childhood? A good question, Gillian. I think um, it's interesting because I often do sit and think about what made me what I am today. And a lot of my memories are, are not great. Um, a lot of fear, a lot of trauma, a lot of anxiety. But I also got a lot of joy from my siblings. Um, we're all very different in some way. Um, very, uh, my siblings are actually got great senses of humour. Um, my mother, we, we got that from our mother. Um, I think that we made ourselves a, a pretty good life um, when considering the trauma we experienced at the hands of our, our um, alcoholic and violent father. Our childhood wasn't all bad and there are, um, we're all pretty successful in our own right and a, a pretty resilient bunch. Um, but I, I do think that I've had some struggles um, because of my childhood. Okay. And tell me about your dad. He was a big man, six foot, um, relatively fit, you know, was a diesel mechanic, a builder, fisherman, very physically um, intimidating man um, and uh, unfortunately uh, a chronic alcoholic and um, the day would always end up with the consumption of way too much alcohol and then that would determine his mood for that night and um, certainly determine how uh, we were impacted at as a family on any given day. Sure. So, so I mean, usually when we think about alcoholism, we're thinking of this guy sort of taking nips out of like a of like a flask throughout the day. But he was more sort of like you just clear off at the end of the day, go to the pub, you know, drink a bunch of beer or something, and then and then come home and take it out on his family. Was that was that kind of the the routine? You know, he wasn't a guy that drank all day. He's ne- it was never like that. He he was very much go go to work, do your day's work. Um, a day's work for him uh, was quite different to my mum. My mum never stopped. Um, but my father, um, once he, he hit that kind of threshold, he would go to the pub. And I think the pub gave him connection. It gave him validity as a person. And he was always, um, I guess, held in high regard at the pub. He was uh, quite a charismatic man could tell a very good joke, had some good stories. And um, I think that's when he, he was in his element. Mm. So what was what was driving his alcoholism? I mean, it sounds like on the one hand, he, he was quite a talented man. You know, he had this charisma. But then on the other hand, it sounds like maybe beneath the surface, he, he wasn't so happy. Yeah, I think we we now are more aware of mental health issues. We're, we're aware of um, how that impacts, I think, Back in the days that my father and my mother and father were growing up, and particularly us as a family, you didn't consider mental health as an issue. I have no doubt my father was undiagnosed with some significant mental health issues. Um, I understand now that he had a difficult childhood. We didn't know a lot about my father's upbringing. We never really had conversations about anything to do with um, anything real. Um, even my my mother didn't talk a lot. She talks a lot now later in life and she feels free to talk. Um, but my mother also equally had a very, very difficult upbringing. 
So we consider our parents and some of the difficulties that they faced. Um, there's a lot more acknowledgement and a lot more support around people who, who are subjected to real adversity um, and trauma. Um, but I, I think back, we, we talk about people like my father. Um, they usually treated it with alcohol. So mm. it compounded the issue and, and certainly made him quite a um, intimidating and, and violent man, um, which was really unfortunate. When you're describing this, you know, you're sort of casting your mind back through time and space t- to this period. Is there a, is there a moment or, or something that he did, you know, a particular night, something that, that stands out to you as being uh, kind of like important in, in sort of shaping who you've become or the journey that you've taken? I don't know if it's one moment. I think it's the feeling of helplessness, mm. um, helplessness in a number of ways to escape it, to change the situation, to, to help my mother, um, to protect her, and that you, you think that you're the only family that is going through this. And so that then um, creates this, uh, bubble of secrecy that we sat within in uh, any of the small towns that we lived in. So I, I guess for me is um, not wanting other young people to feel like I felt. I can't speak for my siblings, but I felt completely under siege and helpless and trapped in that environment. Yeah, well... I mean, just thanks for sharing. I know, I know that this stuff isn't easy to share, so, so thank you. Um, I want to fast forward now to you basically saving your mum from this abusive relationship. And now, this was years later, right? You'd left home and you were living in Darwin at the time. And, and as I understand it, you'd come back to see your parents. Can you tell me what you found when you got home? I think my father's mental health had deteriorated. I think that his reactions and his behaviours were driven um, not only by the alcohol anymore, I think it had become, it it, it had really, um, I think it had attacked him inside and he was very um, unpredictable. It was a really dangerous, volatile environment throughout the throughout the day and my father by then had um, semi-retired so my mum and dad always had businesses service station shops and so he then started buying houses doing them up selling them but but I, I do think that that impacted on his self-worth um, I don't think he was ready to retire and um, my mother really was wearing the brunt of that and it, 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 I knew I couldn't go back to Darwin. I knew this is time to do something and do something um, significant to change this situation. Mm. I mean, that's, that's hard. That's, that's really hard to feel as though you essentially need to rescue your mum. You know, were, were you talking to your mum about this? I'm, I'm imagining yeah. you guys were, you know, you had, to, you had to keep it pretty secretive. What, uh, you hatched a plan. Yeah, well, the, the first, I think the most um, challenging was to talk to my mum about it and, and get some, some consent to, to move away from this situation. And, and, and 
we had this discussion and I, I said that if she stays, she probably won't survive. She knew that, but I don't think she could see a way out. And I started uh, painting a picture of how we could escape and what it could look like. So then we spent a number of weeks um, secretly packing um, and planning our escape, uh, which we eventually did. Jeez, that's that's tense. Was was were there any moments where you, your dad was sort of getting uh, getting wind of what you guys were up to? No, he was pretty unaware. He was so self-absorbed that he he wouldn't have it wouldn't have crossed his mind that my mother was planning an escape. Yeah, right. Um, he would doesn't didn't really look further than himself and and how anything ever impacted on him and and, and you know very very selfish person. So I. Um, I don't think he he really would have noticed even if the boxes were sitting there in front of him. <laughs> well, that's I mean that's sad in itself. So so what happened? You one day you, you pressed the button and and you got your mum out. Yeah, so we we set a date and uh, had some friends come around with a, a truck and um, once he left in the morning, we then very busily worked away and by that time I'd, I'd organised a place for us to move into, and so by the time he came home, we were we were gone. Um, and um, it, it commenced a new life for my mother, but the first 12 months was a very difficult time for her. She was on edge. It was, uh, she's always looking over her shoulder. She was very reluctant to leave our house where we were living at the time. And, but you could see her gradually starting to let go of that anxiety um, and that fear. And... Um, yeah, it was a gradual process, but uh, it, it was um, it was pretty special to watch her kind of come out of this cloud and this shell and the way she'd been restricted in everything that she believed in and everything that she loved. And to give you an example, one of her loves is cooking and she's an amazing chef, incredible mm. chef. But she had to cook to, in a way to suit my father and that's her meat and three veg. So she then began to you know, explore different cooking. And she was actually vegetarian. Huh. And um, She became loved, vegetarian or she'd been vegetarian? She, she had, but I didn't, no one knew she was vegetarian. Jeez. So <laughs> she, she started um, this back, back with her love of baking and cooking. And so I was living with her and I, I, I remember I ate very well because I was a vegetarian as well. So Of course. Um, of course you were. <laughs> we, we just started this life and um, we were kind of like two mates living together and we went on a, a road trip because my mother hadn't been able to go and see any of Australia for many, many years. So she always wanted to go to Canberra and see the um, museums and that's what we did. We went on this road trip and, yeah, so th those times were really special for both of us, I think. That that is amazing. I mean, like, really, you saved your mom. You, you um, and I and I think it's interesting, you know, reflecting on on your career later. It it feels to me like that's sort of one of your first early experiences of actually um, intervening in a situation that you felt was unjust and dangerous, and and really, it like it it came off. It worked. Yeah, well, it was a big risk because if it hadn't worked, you just I, I would worry about what what may have happened, but. I do think that that decision to leave that day also saved my father to some degree as well. He, the, he made some real changes in his life, I understand. He's, he's now passed, but um, uh, I, I do wonder um, 
if we had done that sooner, what life would have been like. But, you know, you, you can't have regrets and we got there and, my, like I say, my mum's 90 now and, and, you know, still living independently. So quite an incredible woman. Yeah, yeah, that is incredible. Yeah. Tell me about how you entered the police force. Yeah, look, um, I do remember in high school looking at the police as a, um, a potential occupation and something I, I wanted to do. And probably the main reason was no one day would look the same as the next. Mm. So, you know, many jobs you go to work and you do the same thing. It's very repetitive and it's pretty predictable. And what attracted me to policing is, is the variety and the contact you have with people and the, the whole your life is around solving problems. That's what mm. you do. You solve problems and you help people solve problems. And that's what attracted me to law enforcement. It wasn't about the enforcement part. It was about the service part of what you provide. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So what was the, what was the first step? I mean, did you sort of just uh, apply? So, yeah, no, I applied for, so while I was living with my mother, I applied for South Australia Police and I also applied for the Northern Territory. And the Northern Territory came back to me a lot sooner. So um, that's where I ended up. And uh, in all honesty, Julian, that's where I wanted to be. I, I felt this gravitation back to the Territory. I was confident my mum my was, um, she, she was thriving and she had the support of my other siblings and she didn't need me now hanging around with her trying to be her best mate. And so I thought it was time I went and so I... Um, in 1988, I went back and joined the Northern Territory Police. Okay, and what was what was that like? Yeah, it was a it was a pretty heavy six months to to be honest. And in the training, I, I found that really um, quite intensive. Um, but I knew right away that it was the occupation for me at the time, and I knew I was doing it at the right place. I, I had this love of the territory and everything that came with it. Um, I, I, lo- I love the people. I love the cosmopolitan type of in, uh, um, community, um, the proximity to Asia, the, the Aboriginal community. Uh, there was something that I, lo- I loved about the Territory. Um, and to be a police officer here, um, which is a really important role, you're, you're given so much responsibility and so much trust, I felt that that was the role for me. Let's get to the true crime aspect of this show. Do you remember the first time that you heard the name Peter Falconio? Yeah, I do. I was at home. <laughs> at home, 11 o'clock on the 14th of July. And um, I was called and asked to come to work because there had been an incident where a man had been abducted or killed and a woman had escaped her partner and she had escaped and she was now talking to police and describing um, what had occurred and and that was when the name Falconio was mentioned to me. And and do you recall your first reaction? Were you sceptical? Were you amazed? You know, what did you feel? No, no none of that. Um, nothing really ever surprises me about what the potential is. <laughs> hmm. um, I, I think when I got to work and I understood the level of, you know, what had occurred and, and having relayed parts of Joanne Lee's account of what had occurred, I, I then became quite concerned. It was not the run of the mill in the Territory. 
to have this sort of crime being committed. And I was also aware that the first 24 to 48 hours was um, very critical in terms of identifying the potential offender offenders and catching them, basically, and also the treatment of the victim in, in ensuring that her welfare is well looked after and we have an accurate and detailed account of what had occurred. Okay, okay. And what happened in those first 24 hours? Some police had already been dispatched to Barrow Creek to speak to uh, Lees and um, by the time I'd arrived, um, they, they had started a discussion with her and the uh, I guess that was the first error that we made is we didn't have anyone experienced on the ground to ensure that the interview was done in a um, probative and appropriate way. Sure, sure. So was the interview actually conducted on site or they brought her back to the police station? No, the first interview was conducted at Barrow Creek. Okay. Yeah. So so she would have been in just in a, in a horrible uh, mind, uh, like a you know, like her mental state would have, would have, should have been all over the place. You know, being questioned just immediately right there where it had happened would be uh, fairly traumatizing, I imagine. Yeah, look, it's not uncommon. You do need to get an account pretty quickly because you have an offender on the run. And so you need to understand what's occurred, not to any great detail, but um, there are certain things that you need to know. So then you can formulate an immediate response and to ensure that your response is targeted in the right area because, as I said, you do not have much time. The longer uh, this goes on, um, it does reduce your your ability to be able to um, identify and locate the offender quickly. Okay, right, right. And my understanding was that uh, the police work initially was fairly sloppy can you can you give me your perception of that yeah it was shabby <laughs> shabby <laughs> yes um so the interview with joanne was no, not done with any great structure the actual first account of what she told us was lost um it was lost it was yeah just... they lost they lost the statement um <laughs> which i was to learn later on through joanne lees when i re-interviewed her also, the crime scene was contaminated and um, fortunately we were able to work around that um, and still present a very, very good case. Wow, but, um, pretty serious we, impediments. Well, we, if we were out to make mistakes, we made them and the, the, the most damaging part of what we did in those first few hours was we brought about influences that later would be quite critical and... There was a lot of criticism directed at Joanne Lees in her descriptions of certain parts of her her story. And I have no doubt that we contaminated her account by the questions we asked and the and what we showed her, um, particularly if you consider the description of the vehicle that Murdoch was driving and also the description of his dog. That was uh, entirely our fault that we, we influenced her in ways that um, really contaminated her account. Mm. Okay. And just to be clear, Murdoch, Bradley Murdoch was the perpetrator. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Do you recall the first time you met Joanne Lees? Yes, I do. Um, the first time I really met her was in the UK, but I did have an introduction to her when she returned from Barrow Creek. So my initial role was to keep the police 
the Central Australian Police Force going. So the detectives were there. They were undertaking the investigation. And I was pretty much in charge of keeping business going, including providing resources for searches, roadblocks. But in terms of investigation, that wasn't my area and I had nothing to do with it. Okay, so you were kind of doing all the other stuff. Like meanwhile, yeah. meanwhile, the, the, the detectives and the, you know, the specialists as they were assigned were all kind of working on the case and you were keeping the, keeping the lights on at the police station and keeping everything else moving. Pretty much I was there um, as the superintendent in charge of the Alice Springs region at that time. I had to just keep things going and, and part of that was to provide resources to the investigative team to help them on the ground. So... I wasn't involved in the investigation, but I, I did assist them with um, the resources for things like uh, the media um, press conferences and things like that. So Got I was it. introduced to Joanne earlier on, um, but I didn't really meet her until I flew to, flew to the UK. Okay, let's let's just talk really briefly about the the media storm at the time because I mean this was a big case. Yeah. I, I remember this being all over the news. Uh, you know, it was an international story because they were from the UK. You know, there was like this. The the story was that there was this like crazed outback Australian psychopath. You know, just like chasing down backpackers and murdering them in the desert. And you know, it was it was fairly sensationalized, but it was also a fairly sensational story. Can, can you just tell me about your memories of that of that media storm at the time? Yeah, look, we'd never seen anything like it, but we had a local paper, The Advocate, and maybe the ABC radio popped in every now and again. But it, it was the police station was surrounded by media. There were vans parked everywhere, and we, we had um, every media outlet was there, and um, including the BBC had representatives on the ground. And it was difficult to know who was who. So one of the things that I also had to do was try and protect uh, the police from the media. Mm. Um, and then trying to um, keep the media away from the station, protecting not only the police but the victim, but they were ruthless. And we'd never seen this sort of media frenzy. Perhaps, you know, in southern states they, they would have had this from time to time, but for, for us in the Territory this was, this was something that hadn't been seen since the Chamberlain days, I imagine. Not that I was around, but I've certainly seen footage and it, it reminds me very much of that sort of frenzy with people trying to get the first picture and doing anything to to get those photographs of Joanne. Wow. Do you do you remember any cases in particular of anyone like pointing cameras through the windows or oh, anything? Look, um, one of, what happened very early on in the piece is um, uh, we had the, the media get into uh, where Joanne was staying and starting to talk to her direct about her story and her account and here, you know, so I get this phone call at home. This is what's happened. And and um, so I'm reeling off all these major media outlets. And, and no, no, it's not them. No, no, no. It was actually the advocate in Alice Springs that got the scope. <laughs> so we had a bit of a laugh about that. The good old, I think it was Mark Wilton right, um, right. from the advocate. So we uh, we thought that was pretty funny at the time. But Yeah, um, yeah. You'd have probably yeah, seen we, Mark down at uh, celebrating at the pub that yeah. late, later that afternoon. Yeah, he was pretty happy, but uh, unfortunately, that did cause a few problems as well because it kind of got misreported, and again, it contaminated the story and it put a lot of mistrust and and it wouldn't have been so damaging if it wasn't that the attacks and the mistrust was all on the victim, Joanne Lees, and and that made it difficult not only in 
um, getting the, the public to help, but also later on during the judicial process where there was this mistrust of her account. Um, so we had to work very hard on, on changing the public perception of Joanne. Mm. I remember there was this very famous interview that uh, Joanne initially did where she was wearing some T-shirt that said cheeky monkey across the front of it. Yeah, that's was... our fault too. Yeah, yeah. tell me about that. So she didn't have a lot of clothing with her because um, that was all in the combi van and so we had to get her some clothes and someone went shopping with her and that's the shirt she came back with. And um, you would have think, thought that maybe the advice was that you're about to go before the, the, the world's media, it's probably not appropriate um, to have Cheeky Monkey written across there, across your chest. Um, and that's what they went with. And I remember just sitting there cringing and thinking, where's the advice coming from uh, as to, you know, uh, how that would appear, the perception of that. And, yeah, that played out for many years and still does from time to time. And, and that did a lot of damage. Um, because it, it kind of brought into that whole she's flippant, she doesn't care, she's involved, look at her, she's wearing a cheeky monkey T-shirt. How serious is she? Yeah, and it, it was just we, we just made so many mistakes and really let Joanne down, I think, in, in our advice to her. Okay, so so how were you assigned to the case? I mean, you were kind of, it sounds like you weren't sidelined, but you certainly weren't central to it. How how did you get brought into the fold? Well, I wasn't in the crime area. I was in the operations area at the time. I, and um, uh, we had a, a new commissioner came on board. One of the first things that he did was seek a review of the case. If there was, It was very public. It was certainly um, impacting on the reputation of the police force. so Was this a few a, months in or like what was the time oh, About four or five months in, I think it was. Okay. Um, and he, one of the the first jobs that he did was seek a, a detailed briefing. He came down to Alice Springs and was briefed by the, um, the team and he also went out to the crime scene. Okay. And um, then... A couple of weeks later, I received a call that I was being promoted to detective superintendent and my first job was to take over this case. How did you feel being told that, uh, hey, um, Colleen, this giant, scary international media circus is now your personal responsibility? Look, I, I, um, it was really mixed emotions at the time. I, I had deliberately distanced myself Everyone talked about it from, as you imagine, it's 25,000, 30,000 people in this town and we've probably got 20,000 people there just watching what was going on, people visiting and whatever role they had, it really did expand the population of the town for a long time. Um, so I think um, initially I, I was a bit daunted, in all honesty. I, I didn't know if I had the experience or the, the, the knowledge to really do this. Um, and so I, I was feeling a little bit anxious about it, but the only, the only way that I, I would fully understand what I was about to embark on was to read everything I could. And that was um, many hours reading, 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 and then understanding where we were at 
and what we needed to do. And then uh, I think within two weeks, I'd made some some significant decisions about how we were going to go forward. Okay, so walk walk me through that reading process. I mean, I'm seeing in my head now this like sort of montage sequence out of a movie where you're up late at night and reading books and you know sort of drawing up maps on your on your living room wall. Like, what what were you reading? What were you learning? You were sort of like reading the various statements given by the. Uh, yeah, so the, we have what's called a, a case. So it's an electronic case. And I was going through and looking at many of the entries, um, critical statements. Um, and then not only was I looking at the content, I was looking at how they were presenting the information. Initially, um, my concern was we had so much information. H- how were we going to find the critical information amongst that? And it was clear to me that we weren't. Yeah. Um, the the other thing that I really concentrated was on the people. So you have to have the right people um, around the case to succeed. You have to first thing is you have to believe the victim right you need to believe the victim and if you don't believe the victim you can't be objective and you really can't contribute in any meaningful way so that was uh, and i i made that assessment by listening to the team and just listening to conversations and sitting within the team and the second part was um were they there for the right reasons did they actually, were they there because they cared about this? They wanted to see a, an end result. They were driven by the motivation to see this through. And um, we went from quite a large team to four people. And, and is that because you felt like certain people on the team weren't there for the right reasons? Absolutely. I, I thought um, some people just were, were there as a number um, others were, um, we had, we were just stepping over each other's toes. So we had to cut it back and then decide what we needed. So I, I cut it back to, actually there was five initially and then to four. Uh, I saw that the, the bigger challenge was about how we were going to organise thousands of pieces of information so we can use the systems, electronic systems, to be able to um, uh, focus us into the areas we needed to look at. And so that's what we did. Hey, we're going to take a quick ad break here, but stick around because when we come back, we're going to hear about how Colleen was dropped off alone in the desert at the crime scene, just so that she could understand what Joanne Lees really went through. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I'm imagining at this time, you know you're looking for a man. You know, you've got a description of the perpetrator, but you've got a vast area in which he could be. Um, you've got probably lots of sightings or lots of information from the public. Um, like, just sort of help me to understand, like, some of the variables in this, sort of the scale of the job. I think by then there was about 10,000 entries that we had on our case. There were thousands of persons of interest, thousands of vehicles of interest. But what was the complicating factor here, Gillian, was the um, the descriptions given by Joanne were varied, um, not by her but by us. So we had very um, uh, the the uh, the sketches that were done were. Um, done by someone that wasn't sufficiently qualified and so they didn't really reflect what Joanne was trying to, to give them. So the, the sketch of the vehicle and the sketch of the person of interest or the offender um, wasn't great and it didn't really uh, give us um, a lot to work with. So that, that confused a lot, and not only did it confuse us, but it also broadened our persons and vehicles of interest. So mm. what we had to do was come up with a criteria that we could eliminate on. So it was really important that we said, right, this is a non-negotiable. He was this tall. He, was, he, uh, he had a stooped um, 
posture. And then if they said he was, you know, um, this, you know, the height was this, he was this sort of weight, he, then we would just eliminate. So we started to eliminate people based on the fact that it just couldn't be them. Right. The, other, the other huge mistake we made is because of financially um, and resources is sending investigators interstate to follow up what were our high priority important leads, we relied on other jurisdictions to provide responses and that isn't the best way to do it because other jurisdictions also have significant workloads and your job doesn't become their priority. So it's that care and attention to... Um, your lines of inquiry and that also impacted on us as well mm, yeah yeah and I understand and I understand in these early days uh, something that you did personally you went out into the desert and you went and spent some time alone to get a sense yeah. of what Joanne Lees went through can can you talk me through that yeah that was in the first week actually that was while I was still observing um, and, and trying to understand um, the case and I thought it was important that I go to the crime scene. And I'd spoken to the new commissioner about his experience. Um, and I thought that one of the things I needed to do was understand it from the victim's perspective. And it was one of the most important things that I did and um, probably one of the best decisions I made. So I got dropped off there and I sat there. Um, so I went there about the same time um, and I sat behind the bush for a number of hours and just listened and listened to the sounds and just to see and understand what it was like from Joanne's perspective. You can't emulate that situation exactly how it was but you can come pretty close to it and it's quite incredible how quiet it is. And the when um, I was being picked up and I told them to drive many kilometres away from me and five or six kilometres away and then listening to the car coming back to pick me up, it, I could. It, it was incredible how clear that sound was and how you could hear everything. And it made sense what Joanne could hear the scraping on the road, the, all of those sounds that she could hear, the fact that she was in a state of panic, her anxiety would have been so heightened and she was bound, keeping still, and then to be able to give the account that she gave was absolutely remarkable. And um, I, I've said before that she is probably the most remarkable witness I've ever come across. And she has this, um, her ability to keep calm under that situation saved her life. Um, and I have no doubt about that. And, and to sit in that position and understand that, you know, I had a, I, I had a two-way radio. I could call someone to come pick me up. She had nothing. So every vehicle that came across, along that highway, she didn't know who they were. She's in a foreign country. How do you, she she might have thought that this was some sort of um, uh, that that there was Bradley Murdoch's travelling along that highway frequently. You just don't know. And some of the remotest um, um, 
country in Australia, in a foreign country, you, I don't know about you, Gillian, but it, it's, a, it's a pretty intimidating, daunting experience. Mm. No, it's, I mean, it's nightmarish. Just uh, hearing yeah. you describe it, it's, it's a shiver yeah. up my spine. You, yeah. said, you said before that this was one of the most important things you did. Why, why was that? I think with any crime, to try and put yourself in the shoes of the victim is really important. Um, clearly, you can't do that for a lot of crimes. But I think in this situation to put yourself out there to understand what she could hear or what she potentially could have heard. It helped me in my questioning with her when I then uh, re-interviewed her um, some months later because I had sat there and I understood it from her perspective. So I think you've got to, you've got to put yourself in their shoes. You can't assume that you know how, what they could hear and what they could see and how it felt. You just, if you can try and reflect that as best you can, um, I think that puts you in a much better position to do your job as best as you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you'd done a lot of reading. You'd gone out to the crime scene and spent some hours by yourself. Um, you said before that one of the most important things was to, was to sort of come to the conclusion that the uh, the victim her her testimony was correct that you could believe her. So then so then when you met her, you'd done all this background research. You'd sort of come to you know you'd sort of spent some time in her shoes a bit. How did that feel to meet her? Yeah, it was. Um, I was nervous um, about meeting her. I I knew that she felt let down. I knew that she she didn't have a lot of confidence in us um, in a whole range of areas, and we really didn't give her an, a lot to 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 um, make her feel at ease or confident that we were had a good handle on this and we would look after her. Um, so when I met her um, at the uh, Hove Police Station in Brighton, um, I was a little apprehensive myself um, and it was a difficult first 30 minutes with trying to, um, I guess, regain some trust in Joanne and um, it was just a matter of her and I getting to know each other. This is who I am. This is my life. This is why I'm here. This is what I care about and, uh, and I actually believe you. We believe you, my colleague and I, we believe what you're telling. We think we've made some mistakes. Be completely upfront with her. Um, but um, I was pretty confident at that time that we were going to um, be able to identify the person who had done this. Did you tell her that? Yeah. You said, we're going to find the guy. No, I said... I am uh, I'm confident that we're on the right track. But for us to get there, there is, mo there is more that I need from her. There are certain things that I don't understand and I, I needed her to clear up some of the ambiguities, which she did. Um, but that was a very tough day for her. Um, I talk about it being tough for me, but mm -hmm. um, I didn't live this. And... Um, 
she was very emotional. She swung from being uh, upset to being um, happy um, to being um, thankful to being angry to being and it was it was an, an emotional roller coaster. We spent some hours with her and and um, it, it really confirmed to me that she was quite an incredible woman and her courage was was yeah like I said before it's remarkable um, and I had no doubt when we spoke with her and we went through certain parts of her initial statement that she absolutely was credible. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like from that one meeting that you both sort of decided that you trusted and respected one another. Yeah, I think so. Um, but she, she got angry at me from time to time because I was always the one that was up front with her. Yeah. Um, and that was okay. Because um, we, uh, we, I guess, from our perspective, we, we've got to we've got to understand that, and we've got to understand why she's unhappy and why she's frustrated, and and why when I say no, you actually you can't go and do this. Um, you know, her view was, well, how how can you limit my freedoms? And I said, well, I I have to because. We have a job to do, and that is to identify who's done this and then convict them. Mm. And um, and it was that that's a very difficult message to provide someone like Joanne. But um, in the end of the day, we we had a pretty good relationship. And I understand that in on this same trip to the UK, that you met her. Sorry, you met Peter Falconia, the victim's parents. Yeah, we we travelled up to um, Huddersfield. Okay. And um, we were uh, West Yorkshire Police um, facilitated our meeting. We went to their house and spent a number of hours with uh, Joanne, uh, sorry, not Joanne, with um, Joan and Luciano and um, Paul and Peter, the boys. Um, at the, yeah, it was, again, it was a, a very difficult time. Um, but uh, also uh, an, an incredible uplifting experience. So how did you do it? I mean, in the end, you, you got the guy. You got, you got Bradley Murdoch. How did you do it? Hard work. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think with anything like this, you have to have a system. You, you, it's a, I had four incredible detectives. That they were... They're, sorry, three, probably shouldn't call myself incredible. We, we just worked, <laughs> we worked together so well. We were all very different, but they dedicated their life for four years to this. They, it took, they, they it was four years. Life. It was a four well, years. It was over four years actually wow. from start to finish to, to getting it to court. Um, and that, that was their life. They dedicated their life to it during those times. And their, their ability to be able to dissect thousands of pieces of information and know it like the back of the hand was quite incredible. I take my hat off to them and um, it was through their their belief and their stoic kind of approach to this and, and never they, they were never derailed, they never listened to the noise around them, they just were absolutely 
dedicated to this. And look, we had some really difficult discussions and we debated things. And that's what I liked about them is we didn't always agree, but I thought that was healthy because it showed that how much they cared about the case. And and through the the three detectives that saw this from the start to the finish, it, it was their hard work and their intelligence and their ability to be able to to understand some of the nuances and provide me with really good briefings and information to steer us in the right direction. So I, I think it was through our relationships that we had created and established with some of the people around Bradley Murdoch that allowed us to understand more about him and then make those connections. And, and I think that our use of informants was really clever. Okay. Okay. And what what was what was the the most uh, important pieces of evidence or the most important informants that really pointed to Bradley? Well, it, in the trial or in the committal as well, there was a a man called James Happy who was a um, a partner, a drug running partner of Bradley Murdoch, and fortunately for us, that that relationship had soured, and um, then Happy became very erratic and careless. And um, we were able to strike while their relationship was dysfunctional and he was able to give us um, some information that certainly assisted us. Okay, okay. And, and I understand there was something about a hair scrunchie that was quite important. It wasn't a scrunchie, it was a hair tie. A hair tie. Um, and that was found by one of the detectives in the back of Bradley Murdoch's Land Cruiser. And that was Joanne's hair tie. So he had it um, wrapped around the holster of his firearm. Um, you know, people talk about, was it a trophy? Was it, I don't know, maybe just, we don't know, you know. But when that was shown to him um, during the trial, he recoiled in such a way that we knew it was significant. And we, um, so it was a critical piece of the, the circumstantial evidence that we put together uh, we talk about the DNA and the significance of the low copy number DNA and how powerful that was, but it was this this tie that that um, one of the detectives had found that was really the nail in the coffin, so to speak. And what do, what did you learn about Bradley Murdoch? I mean, what was he? What was his life like? What what had he been doing before the moment that that he met this British couple in a in a in a van? Yeah, his story is interesting. He's, um, he, he had a criminal record in Western Australia. He's quite erratic. He had fired at some um, Indigenous people at Fitzroy Crossing a number of years before and had injured, I think, a woman in that. He'd done some time for that. He had also been a member of the Gypsy Jokers, uh, or organised motorcycle gang, and if you know anything about OMCGs, they are a very uh, tough group. They are known to be very violent, aggressive. However, Murdoch was asked to leave that group because they thought he was a little too dysfunctional. So wow. that gives you a um, it gives you a painful picture of Bradley Murdoch. He um, he's a very intimidating man. He's he's a bit of obsessive compulsive. Um, he, he's very clean and tidy, would have, you know, a place for everything and everything in its place. He'd have everything put in certain areas in the where he lived, where in his cars. He would um, 
if he was fixing a car, he was a diesel mechanic by trade, he would have a piece of carpet he would stand on. He had some kind of strange idiosyncrasies like that. Um, he um, had many dysfunctional relationships, mostly with um, prostitutes. Um, he had some very loyal followers. Um, he would provide, he would supply drugs to people who I think maybe in return for their loyalty. He, uh, he travelled a lot, so he was a drug runner for many years and so he didn't stay in one place too long. Mm. He, was, um, he was on the road a lot and in doing that he, would, um, he was a big user of, you know, amphetamines, um, cannabis, drinking coffee, he, he would, he, everything. You know, he, was, he would just fuel himself to, sure. to drive many Lots of hours. uppers. Yeah, and and he was a real bushy. He knew the he knows the um, I guess Central Australia like the back of his hand, and he had driven all those little roads, and and he he knows the um, he knows the country. He's a real bushy, and he would be able to survive a long time in the bush. Um, he's uh, so if he went missing, I think we would have struggled to find him. Wow. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you know was this his or do you suspect that this was his first murder or had he maybe he had a bit of a secret hobby sort of in the in the past? Look, I think one of the things that we as a team turned our mind to is that he 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 was responsible for other deaths, other murders, missing people. The the reason why we we thought that was he was very organised, um, very methodical. Um, the, the the making of the manacles and practising um, that art and how he went about doing that. And uh, we, we have no doubt that he followed Peter and Joanne for some time. Um, and he, he strikes me as someone who um, has done this before. We did work with some other task forces across Australia um, to look at whether there are um, missing people unaccounted for that may have come across Bradley Murdoch. And you know, I was contacted for a number of years after by uh, different um, investigative units, task forces saying, do you think that your guy could have been involved here? And so, and that's law enforcement across Australia is um, they all do work together and we look at where there's um, uh, either um, deaths that are unaccounted for, murders that are unaccounted for, um, suspicious deaths, or whether there are people missing that um, some of these uh, more noted, um, I guess, offenders such as Bradley Murdoch, could they be responsible for more than one? And um, my sixth sense is yes, but I have nothing, only really um, based that on his behaviours and his actions and the way that he, his premeditation and it just, I find it hard to believe that this is, he's only done this once. We have so many people missing in Australia that are unaccounted for. So yeah. you've, got, you've got to say that um, there's a percentage of them that have met foul play. So yeah, that, that, that's a difficult one. And, and having said that's a difficult one for families who are also... Um, have family members who are missing and, and and don't know where they are. So I don't say those things lightly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that you've seen the, the movie Wolf Creek. 
Um, I've seen half of it. <laughs> what? Tell me. Tell me why only half. I just couldn't sit through it. I just. No, I, I don't know. I just didn't find it to be great entertainment. I, I don't know. No. I just. I don't watch many movies. Yeah. Um, particularly these sort of movies that um, are similar to my experiences as a as a person in life. Um, I watched. Yeah, watched half of it, and I just I just couldn't take it seriously. I just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, all due I respect ask. for those people that made that movie. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I, I just I think they're doing okay. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I just no, it's not, it's not a movie for me. I, I, yeah. I, I take my hat off to people that it, that enjoyed it. Sure. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just went a little bit too far, I think. But I, yeah, I saw yeah. where they picked aspects of our case, and um, I think it was kind of a combination of some different um, murder investigations. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, not for you. What's <laughs> um? <laughs> I, I've got one one more question about Bradley, and and that was uh, the time that you met him. Yeah, it was just one on one. Tell me about that. It wasn't really one on one. So I, I had my colleague uh, with me at the time, um, and we had um, the, the guards were there at Yatla Prison in in. South Australia and when I met him we went into a room it was a kind of a meeting room a long room um, and we we went there with the hope that we would interview him and sorry he'd been picked up how what was the what was the so, context here okay so he had been um, he was on remand at the time for the um, rape and attempted abduction of a mother and child and her her daughter in South Australia so he was um, on remand at that time, waiting to appear be- to uh, in response to those charges. Okay, okay, and you, you'd there were a couple of couple of signs pointing his way, so he was in detention. So you thought, hey, while we've got him, let's go and have a, a talk about this other case, this you know case that's a couple of years old by this point. Yeah, so it kind of fell into our hands, Julian, with this one because we one of the things we did do with the, our case is we had a criminal profiler profile our offender and um, it just so happens that that profiler, who's FBI trained and quite an amazing profiler, it was the district superintendent, I think was her rank, of the, the, the district where Murdoch had committed these other crimes in South Australia. Okay. Okay. All right. And and so you walk into this room. Bradley Murdoch's there. You know what's that? What's that like? He actually, we were in the room, and he came into us. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, when you're thinking about this case for so long, and you're imagining this person, um, I he looked exactly how I imagined. He behaved exactly how I imagined. And the first thing I noticed was his hair and the description that Joanne gave us that he had these kind of shiny flecks in his hair. And I thought that was really interesting and it stayed with me. And um, I found myself kind of looking around as I was just in the community, looking to see if anyone has these shiny, just to see what she was talking about. And as soon as he walked in, walked in I saw it. Mm, wow. So it's kind of these grey shiny bits and I and, and it's, it's very um, distinctive. So, again, credibility to Joanne Lees. How do you pick up on that? Yes, so, in a life um, and death I, situation. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that. His hair was very short 
and um, he he tried to intimidate me. He stood very close to me, um, was raising his voice, and as he was raising his voice, he's you he could feel his spit <laughs> on my face. Uh, but I was very um, mindful of not letting him win and I kind of stood there and didn't take a step back. And my colleague, my male colleague, he stood to the back of the room and he kept looking at him because he's the one that he wanted to deal with. He didn't want to deal with me um, because I think for him women have a certain role in life and it wasn't to interrogate him over right. this. I won't say anything more about that. He's old school. But He's very old school. So um, it was our ploy to put me up front. He was very unhappy with that and he, he kept looking at my male colleague and wanting to, to answer him because uh, he felt more comfortable like that. So mm. we, um, we talked for some time and, and he, um, he kept raising his voice. He was clearly frustrated and for, for us, we believed straight away that he knew he was in that we, we had a lot on him. He knew he was in strife. I've heard you previously say that in this moment he sort of reminded you of, of your dad. Yeah, very similar, very similar um, uh, way of communicating, very similar stature, um, even so much as that frustration translates into the raising of the voice. And, yeah, he... Um, there, there is a, a photo that went around for some time of our task force bringing him back when we extradited him from Adelaide to Darwin and he's in the on the escalators at the Darwin airport and there's a photo where he's turning to one side. That could be my father. It is so, and, and my siblings have said, don't you think he looks like our father? So, you know, it, it's interesting how things come back. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, and oh, I guess that the thought of him... Um, being similar in nature to my father was was quite um, uh, a disturbing thought for me at, at times, um, but not so much that it derailed me. But but it's interesting how things come back around yeah. Yeah, in yeah. your life, and and there's a lot about Bradley Murdoch that's similar to my father. But uh, I'm pretty sure my father's never killed anyone. But thank God. Sure, um, sure. But uh, you know, both diesel mechanics. My father was very much about. He, he was a bit obsessive-compulsive as well, so it's interesting. It uh, it does feel to me like this the moment of serendipity, this sort of like cosmic poetry in which you save your mom younger in life. Later in life, you put this man behind bars who sort of reminds you of your dad somewhat. Um, you know, did this, did this feel very apparent to you at that time or has it sort of become this thing that you've thought about later? No, well, initially... I- it was apparent to me that he, he looked a bit like my father. Yeah. And I didn't think a lot about it until later on when I've reflected. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, you have those moments of reflection, you think about your life, and I've had to do a lot of that in the last 12 months. I've had a lot of reflection. And I think that whole cycle of this happening with my father and then being part of this team that um, puts... Bradley Murdoch away and this man who reminds me of my father it's it's a bit surreal really and sometimes mm. I think am I starting to put these things is that am I trying to fit these things together but no I don't think so it, the reality is he's similar to my father and you know it's no more complicated than that yeah yeah 
Okay, let's let's move forwards. Um, I understand that you left the police force not long after that. I mean, I guess it felt like that was a, you know, you'd done your work there. Actually, I stayed quite some time okay. after that, but I just I just could never find my place after that. Um, so so you became the, the Children's Commissioner for the Northern Territory. Um, I know that you instigated the Royal Commission to the abuse at, at Dondale. Um, you know, these are, these are really, uh, well, I mean, first of all, amazing. You know, I, I, it feels to me like you've, you've really actively, tangibly made a difference for probably, you know, it's, it'd be hard to put a number on it, but for like, surely there are lots of people right now in the Northern Territory whose lives are, are better because of you and your work. And, and I want to unpack what motivates you through this. I mean, like, you know, this isn't easy work. This is really hard stuff. You're confronted with horrible situations. Uh, you're you're confronted with uh, sort of immovable bureaucracies and and lacks uh, and a lack of funding. And you know, I imagine it's difficult work. So so, what drives you forwards? Look, I think uh, I finally left the police. I realised it's. It, I don't think that where that's where I belonged anymore. And I, I thought that um, I was ready for something else. And the when the uh, children's commissioner's role came up. I thought that was probably a good fit for me at the time. Um, I never would believe how life-changing it would be and how challenging it would be and how emotional it could be at times and also rewarding at times. But um, the first, I, I guess that, that first matter, um, the, the first thing I was confronted with was what occurred in Dondale and that's all well documented through the Royal Commission. Um, and then to see that there are the levels of child disadvantage um, was so significant and more than what I ever had imagined. And then also coupled with looking at the services that existed in the Northern Territory to combat um, child abuse um, and all and any services to vulnerable children, I was quite shocked at how bad we were at it. Um, and and again, I, it wasn't the people that worked within it because to work in child welfare or child services, you've got to be a pretty special sort of person. And the people I met were pretty amazing, but they were let down by the bureaucracy. So we we just didn't put this the the systems and the resources on the ground to assisting families and again we reacted 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 um, and one of the biggest problems and challenges we have in the northern territory is the further you get away from the, the bitumen sometimes the the more problematic the abuse is because there is never any eyes on it um, i think there have been some improvements of late um, with the, the government really looking at how do we get services to the remote communities, um, how do we make sure that they are authentic, how do we make sure that they are community-driven, um, but we won't see the outcome of some of this good work in my time. But I, I guess for me, having had my upbringing, seeing what I saw in the police, so what I was seeing as a children's commissioner was was not a lot different to what I'd experienced in the police. But when you come from an independent statutory officer looking at these problems and then trying to 
remedy them or, pre- or prefer solutions, it became it's so difficult to get the bureaucracy to, to change direction, to rethink what they're doing. They may start on a road to, to reform and then something happens and they move. And yeah. one of the biggest issues is the reactive nature of our bureaucrats and the fact that they have very little understanding or exposure to what actually happens on the ground and also the cycle of government. You know, we have very small cycles of government and and then we have big policy decisions that are made on the run that impact squarely on our really vulnerable families. Um, however, having said these things, what also became really clear to me and and, and this is probably coupled with some of the work that I've done outside of um, my professional life, and that is with um, sport, is I do believe that unless we give some of our young people responsibility and accountability, we won't get to where we need to go. Mm. We can't keep handing, handing, handing out and going, that's okay, you just sit there and don't go to school and don't don't turn up to this and it can't work that way. So one of the things that we've done with trying to um, use AFL as a way to um, support as a platform to bring kids out of this kind of hopelessness is to use it to so any young child that can see uh, some light at the end of the tunnel you will get something tangible out of them that will get them on the road to doing something that will help them be part of the community contribute so what I've done is use football as a platform and then using whether it be government or community support or um, also significant sponsorship um, to make some real definite inroads into the social disadvantage and despair that exists and it works. And I've seen it work um, in Arnhem Land, I've seen it work in Tiwi and different um, communities within the Northern Territory. Um, I think we need to broaden our our view um, to using sport or something like sport or the arts to try and trigger some something in our young people to give them just some sense of hope because if you ask yourself, Gillian, if you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, actually, I don't know where I'm going today, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just sitting here, I'm existing in the moment without anything to to move towards or think about this is where I'm going. Can you imagine how your life would feel? Yeah. I mean, especially if I'm dealing with some other trauma or, you know, a generalised feeling of, I don't know, existential pointlessness, then, yeah, getting up and there's nothing to do and no direction in my life. That Yeah, really hard. That's That's what we have. So we have to find a solution to that. I, I really, I'm really interested in this idea of, and I'd love to get your thoughts on on the notion that a lot of um, suffering in the world, be it, you know, the suffering that you see in amongst uh, indigenous communities in the Northern Territory, or or suffering that maybe you felt as a child, is at the hands of aggressors who are fundamentally evil or fundamentally, you know, wrongheaded in some way, you know, like. In your experience, is that the case, or is it, or is suffering driven by factors that are a lot more complicated? I think um, if you've got to look at generational suffering and trauma to understand where it came from. So you look at the 
so I've been here long enough now to see some different generations. So the young kids that are offending or are or require child protection, their mothers also did, and so did their mothers. So you go through these generations and it self-perpetuates itself. And and I, I guess that's where this whole intervention, right, at this point in time we're going to have a different future, things are going to, we're going to intervene here and we're going to change this trajectory and so this doesn't continue to happen. So we have uh, adults who are also traumatised um, trying to then bring up children and their capacity to do that and their, their skills to do that and their mental their, I guess their emotional capacity is so limited. So when I said, well, this stuff's evolutionary, it's going to take a long time, but we've got to start, we've got to stop changing direction. That's beautiful. And I think I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Um, Colleen, it's been such a, a wonderful conversation. Um, I, I th- really think you're an inspiration, not just for the work you're doing, <laughs> but also honestly because it seems like you've got a unique ability to take big problems and to figure out what's important, what's not, and to sort of uh, to chart a way through uh, some sort of like big complicated problems. So, yeah. so it's been really, well, really interesting. I think, I think one of the things that I didn't say in this, Julian, that yeah. is important um, and it might be controversial. Go for it. I said it, I said it to you on the phone the other day that I, I joined the police because I wanted to solve problems. I wanted to work with community and I'd seen it done so well as a child. And then when it became not a police service but an enforcement approach, I could, I, it just didn't, for me, it didn't align anymore because I'm not about giving a ticket out to someone who goes 10Ks over the limit. If, if, if their focus is on us um, providing government revenue, whether it be through the enforcement of um, infringement notices or just uh, dealing with people when they've done something wrong, I think we've, we've, we as, an inf, um, as police have missed the boat. So all over the world you'll see police forces that have a, a very much an enforcement approach are losing the war on crime. But in some of the countries where they've gone back to uh, proactive problem-solving policing where they're working with the community, the crime rates go down. And it's as simple as that. It's uh, community should be able to police themselves. All the police do is they assist Mm, mm. I think that's really interesting. So, I think that it feels to me like that goes back to your point about uh, sort of generational trauma as well and sort of understanding yeah. why people are behaving the way they are. It's not. Yeah, and, and, and I think just on that, we are trying to solve social problems with legislation. You will never change how people feel or people act with legislation. Yeah. We cannot solve problems and we have to stop doing that as a, as a society. Legislation has never solved social problems. And I, I, it's people, it's champions. It's, it's trying to bring people together and translating it into language that they understand, not our language. And that's our interview with Colleen Gwen. If you've enjoyed this episode and you're thinking, hey, I got something kind of similar, a story with uh, some twists and turns, then please get in touch. We're always looking for story suggestions or feedback or whatever it is. So hit me up. I'm Julian Morgans on Instagram and at Morgans Julian on Twitter. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffery. It was edited and mixed by Jimmy Saunders, and he also did our theme music. Our cover art is by Naomi Lee Beveridge, and a big thanks to our intern, Gabrielle Wani. 
This whole thing has been a production of Super Real. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.